Welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast, the podcast where we interview Jewish philosophers and educators on topics in Jewish philosophy, theology, and Jewish thought. Please remember to subscribe to the podcast and visit www.jewishphilosophypodcast.com for more information. Enjoy! Rabbi Klein, welcome to the Jewish Philosophy Podcast. The title of this podcast is, Is Judaism a Monotheistic Religion? So to begin, could you tell us a bit about how you became involved in Jewish philosophy and Jewish theology? Well, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for inviting me to this podcast. Uh, this is, I, I find the project very interesting and it gives, us, it gives me an outlet and a forum to discuss things that I don't necessarily get to discuss on a weekly basis, you know. Um, you know, I'm basically, I'm a yeshiva guy, you know, through and through. I learned in yeshiva, um, Mir Yeshiva in, in, in Yerushalayim, BMG Yeshiva by Spanish Gavoa in Lakewood, New Jersey for close to 15 years. I was in yeshivas. My interests lie mostly in Torah, but I sort of take a more inclusive definition of, you know, what, what do I consider legitimate Torah and what do I consider things that are, you know, worth worth studying under the rubric of Torah. So I include things like Parshanus, which is uh, biblical hermeneutics, exegesis, you know, things like Halacha, Lamdis, which is Talmudic dialectics, Agada, which is Jewish lore, Musr, history, language, philology, Machshava, Hashkafa, and you know, included in all of that is philosophy and theology, which are you know part and parcel of these various facets of Torah. So, you know, that, that that's how I really became involved in Jewish philosophy and theology, really from the Torah end of it, as opposed to from the philosophy or theology per se end of it. You probably, you, you, you came across me, to invite, you invited me here because I wrote a book called God versus Gods, Judaism in the Age of Idolatry, which was published by Mosaic of Press 2018. And that book really discusses you know, Judaism versus Avodah versus idolatry from more of a historical, biblical narrative perspective. It also has an encyclopedia of the different types of Avodah but it doesn't really touch as much in, in on the philosophy or theology or theosophical ideas as you know, we're going to discuss this evening. And as Bezos, God willing, I'm going to be able to uh, discuss in a future volume. I do sort of touch on these ideas in chapter seven when I discuss uh, the Agadah, the Jewish tradition about getting rid of the Yetzahara, the evil inclination for Avodah Zarah and the implications of that story and what does it mean to have a Yetzahara for Avodah Zarah and you know, what, what does it mean that God got rid of it or the rabbis got rid of it by praying, different things like that. I did discuss that in the first volume, but I'm really hoping to work on a second volume that's going to delve deeper into those philosophical, theological ideas about the difference between Judaism and Avodah Zarah. I also speak about different ideologies of Avodah Zarah cults that existed in the time of Tanakh in the first volume, but but this is going to speak more in broader terms of the difference between Judaism and Avodah Zarah. So, you know, that's how I really got involved in this whole topic of uh, Jewish philosophy and theology. I'm trying to understand, you know, what do we hold as Jewish people versus, you know, what were the other theologies or philosophies that were in vogue in the time of Tanakh that the Tanakh is, you know, coming to say 
coming to obviate or coming to exclude those ideas, you know, by by contrasting the two different points of view, you can come to a clearer understanding of you know what 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 our religion is trying to say. Okay, that's excellent. So let's begin with the the first main question. So, what are the main reasons to question classifying Judaism as a monotheistic religion? Most people will. Um, you know, count Judaism as the monotheistic religion. So why should we even question this? Okay, so you know, let, let, let's take, let, let's look at it from the sort of philo- philosophical perspective, okay? You take the proposition that Judaism is a monotheistic religion, okay? So now, what does that mean? So you have to define what is Judaism and what is a monotheistic and what is a religion and see if that classification you know, anytime you make a classification of something, classifying Judaism in a certain category, you're sort of setting up an equation. You're saying whatever the definition of Judaism is equals or at least is included in whatever the definition of monotheistic and religion is. Right. So if you want to make such a proposition, then you better make sure that however you define Judaism is compatible with however you define what a monotheistic religion is. The first step is really to define your terms. and. Once you define all your terms, everything is much clearer. And then you can understand you know, what you're saying and what you're trying to say. So let's take this proposition that Judaism is a monotheistic religion. So let's try to define what is Judaism? What is religion? So these, type, these questions are a little bit too difficult to, to, to com- very complicated to define. What does it mean, Judaism? Some people will prefer to say, well, there's Judaisms in plural, not one Judaism. So I, I'd rather bracket out the discussion of how do you define Judaism and how do you define religion? And we'll focus on what does it mean that something is monotheistic? What is monotheism? So the term monotheism is sort of a Greek term uh, based on the, pref- the prefix mono, which means one. Like you have like the word monopoly or monorail, or like a mono sound system as opposed to a stereo sound system. It's like mono means one. And theism means the belief in God. So ergo, monotheism means the belief in one God. Monotheism. One, theism is belief in God. Mono is one. So it's monothe- therefore, monotheism means belief in one God. So the question is, well, however you define Judaism, but does Judaism believe in one God? Well, now we've replaced one uh, proposition with another proposition. Judaism equals belief in one God. Is that true or not true? Well, let's define what it means, belief in one God. Okay, we're going to discuss that in a moment. But on the surface, it does seem to be true that Judaism is monotheistic religion. And I can bring you multiple proof texts from the Bible itself, which seem to support this proposition that Judaism is monotheistic. It says in the verse in Deuteronomy, it says, V'yotato hayom this is Deuteronomy 4.39. It says, And you shall know today, and shall place in your hearts, that Hashem is the God in the heavens above and on the earth below. There is no other. There is no other. There's only one God. Another verse. You, this is Deuteronomy 4.35. You have been shown to know that Hashem is the God. There is none other but Him. Another verse. This is a famous, probably the most famous passage in the entire Torah. Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Achad. Hear, O Israel, Hashem, 
Our God, Hashem, is one. So there's only one God. Another verse, Deuteronomy 32, 21. They made, God says, they made me jealous through worshiping a below El, a non-God entity. They angered me with their vanities. So again, whatever other thing you might be worshiping, according to, from the Jewish perspective, is a non-God. It's a low L. Right? So Judaism only holds of one God. Another verse, also from Deuteronomy 32, 39. You shall see now that I, I am him. And there is no other God with me. I bring death and I bring life. I smite and I heal. And there is no other one who can save. There is no there is no one who can save from my hand. Okay, so that verse tells you there's only one God. It's the same God. God, you know, Hashem. Hashem brings life. Hashem brings death. Hashem smites. Hashem heals. It's all coming from one God. There's no room in Judaism for what they call dualism, the belief in two gods. It's only one God. All of these verses that I mentioned, and there, there are maybe possibly more like them, that point to this idea that there is only one God. And that supports the notion that Judaism is a belief in one God. So that's the basis for the proposition that Judaism is a monotheistic religion. But you asked me, you know, what, are, what, 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 is the, what are the reasons to question this classification? You know, why is it considered somewhat problematic, at least in some circles. So it, it is, it's a complicated question, and we're going to discuss two main problems that, that this proposition is marred with. The first problem is raised by academic scholars who refuse to see Judaism as a monotheistic religion. Well, actually, interestingly, they don't. They actually refuse to call it Judaism. They want to call it, you know, the ancient Israelite religion or the Yud K Vav K Ist cult, which I actually personally find offensive. But academic scholars, I I call it Judaism because that's what we call it, and that's what it you know it, it's a continuation of this ancient Israelite religion. But the way academia wants to look at it, they'll say that no, Judaism is a later permutation of the ancient Israelite religion that's reflected in the Bible. But our tradition says that no, Judaism is, you know, it's it, it's the same thing as the ancient Israelite religion. Either way, the point is that academic scholars refuse to see Judaism as monotheistic, and when faced with these verses that I had uh, had so nicely read to you in both English and in Hebrew, the answer well happens to be that all those verses that you mentioned are only in Deuteronomy but not in the rest of the Pentateuch, not in the rest of the five books of Moses. So they'll tell you that it's true that the book of Deuteronomy might be monotheistic, but you don't see this doctrine of monotheism spelled out clearly elsewhere in the Bible. You know, it was not, or at least in the, in, the, in the Pentateuch. And so they would tell you that Deuteronomy was actually written later than the rest of the Tanakh and represents this or reflects this later development of Judaism, but that the ancient Israelite religion or cult, as they call it, was not monotheistic and it later developed into a monotheistic type of religion. That's what the academics would say. 
and this is one of the main one of the arguments of biblical that biblical criticism is based on this idea of historical development or historical evolution of the Jewish religion and so if we want to say that Judaism is a monotheistic religion so we're going to have to explain answer this question why is it that the monotheistic aspects of Judaism are only seen in the biblical book of Deuteronomy and not in any other book of the Bible? That's one question. Okay. Another question. You want to say that Judaism is monotheistic? Well, I have a question for you. How can it be that Judaism accepts the existence, the existence of such divine characters as angels, demons, mazolos, spheros, right? mazolos are celestial forces, and spheros are sort of the uh, the channels through which God um, in, engages in the world. So all of these seem to be alternate or, or additional forces, divine forces that have influence on mankind that are besides God. So how can you tell me you only believe in one God? You know, the, you know let's say the rabbis tell us that, you know, how did Joseph know all 70 languages? So it says that the, the archangel Gabriel came and taught in 70 languages. So like, wait, one second, where, where is this? So you, so you believe that there's like this entity called Gabriel who has like these superpowers? So how could you tell me you only believe in one God? You also believe in these different types of angels, this Gabriel character. You know, and there's all kinds of things in the, in the, in the Talmud and that talk about how we do certain things or we don't do certain things because we're worried about demons and damaging, uh, damaging forces and things like that. How could you say you only believe in one God? You, you believe in these other things as well. Especially if you're looking at Judaism from the more mystically inclined uh, perspective, a non-Maimonidean strands of Judaism you know, they have these the, all these different types of angels, demons, mazolas, spheros, you name it. So how can you claim that Judaism is monotheistic? There's all the, the all of these other all of these other forces exist in the So we're gonna we're gonna have to discuss this in, 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 as as we go later on, but you know the, the question is gonna really boil down to like what does it mean? What what's the definition of a god? If monotheism is the belief in one god, you know, what is what is the definition of a god? You know, that's where the philosophy and the theology really come in and are, are going to be important for this discussion. Okay, so let me just make some um, comments on, on, on what you've just said. So first of all, um, I mean, doesn't it seem obvious that there's a difference? Let's say, I mean, I exist, I think so. Uh, you exist and there's animals that exist and there's all different things that exist. But that doesn't mean that we are gods. So why does the fact that there are angels and demons and all these different things mean that necessarily that they're gods. Why does they have to be equated with gods? Why, what, what is the, the difference, say, between the, my existence and the existence of the animal kingdom and these beings? What's the difference? Well, we're gonna, we'll get to that point in a few minutes. Okay, we'll, so we'll, 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 we'll develop, develop that in a second. Okay, great. So let me ask you another question on that as well. Um, you mentioned before when you were, t- you mentioned, let's just summarize what you've said so far. There's two different um let's call them objections to the proposition that Judaism is a monotheistic religion. So the first objection, we can maybe call it a biblical objection, which is the idea that we only find um, 
God's unity and God's um, maybe God's oneness, let's call it the fact that he's alone um, in the last book of the Torah. And that's the first objection. It's called the biblical objection. And the second objection is, let's call it maybe more the mystical objection. And the mystical objection is that, well, there seems to be all different variety of forces, etc. Now, just on the first objection, the biblical objection, I mean, there are things in Deuteronomy, in, in, in Devarim, that aren't anywhere else. Why does that necessarily have to mean that they only developed later? I mean, if let's say I write um, a five series um, novel where in the fifth book I explain exactly what's been going on throughout all the other books, why does that necessarily mean that it's only present in the fifth book? There must be something more than just assuming that it develops later, surely. Um, let, 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 let's take a look at the standard approaches to biblical criticism. Okay. okay? So even, let's say, from a traditionalist perspective, there, from, a, from a strictly orthodox perspective, there's multiple approaches to biblical criticism. There are some people who embrace it, and that's becoming more and more, um, especially in the Dati Lumi world, people are, you know, the, um, the Herzog College is, you know, and students of, um, of, the, of the yeshiva in Gush Etzion are more and more open to some of the tenets of biblical criticism. Okay. That, that, that's, that's one approach to biblical criticism. Others sort of accept some parts of it and tweak it and accept and reject other parts of it. But the most common reaction to biblical criticism in the traditionalist orthodox circles is to just completely ignore it. There are people like Rabbi Dr. Joshua Berman who sort of use the tools of biblical criticism to against biblical criticism itself. It's like, for example, one one of the points that he makes in his book is he wrote multiple books, but in his latest book printed by uh, by Corin. He he talks about how you know, one of one of the things that biblical critics do is that they apply modern modern day literal paradigms or literary paradigms to the ancient world without looking at ancient writings in their own context. Right? So like things that like to us to our sensibilities things like repetition or redundancies or superfluities um, and things like contradictions. So those are problematic literary devices because how could you say it was like this and then you said it was like this? It was like that or like this, right? And he'll say that, no, in the ancient ancient Near East, you know, that type of writing was a more accepted way and you have to know what type of information is it really trying to tell you? Is it even meaning to tell you historical um, information? You know, that's what Rabbi Dr. Berman says. You know, he's, he's really following an earlier approach at least um, in, a, in a sense, from Rabbi Moshe David Casuto, also known as Umberto Casuto, who is sort of using the tools of biblical criticism to, to defend the traditionalist perspective on the Bible. Okay, these are different ways to approach biblical criticism and, and, and understand you know, how that jibes with traditional sensibilities. Personally, my, my favorite approach is to take the questions that biblical critics raise and see how rabbinic tradition might have already addressed those issues. That, that's the way I like looking at it. You know, the, a lot of the times, you know, academia and scholars, you know, scholars in the halls of scholarship, they try to pretend like they've reinvented the wheel. 
know, they, they, they came up with something new that nobody has ever thought of before, and therefore they're going to give their answers, and then they're going to answer all their questions. Right? They have this sort of the, the hubris of, you know, we're coming up with the answers, and we, we have the best answers that nobody has ever thought of before. And, you know, their answers might evolve over time. You know, the way that the world looks like biblical criticism now is not the way it was, you know, 200 years ago in the time of Wellhausen. When he developed, when he first developed his documentary hypothesis, that those are not necessarily the exact same thing. It, it, it evolves, but my way of my my favorite approach, my preferred approach, is to look at Chazal, to look at rabbinic tradition, and you know the rabbinic sources, and to see through the lens of the traditional sources how do we understand, how can we answer the questions that biblical critics try to raise? Okay, so I, I usually what happens is that. Any good question that biblical critics ask has really already been asked by the rabbis beforehand. I, I can give you multiple examples. Yeah, the, one of the, the most basic questions that biblical critics ask is, you know, the question of Hashem versus Elohim. Right? Why in the Bible does it sometimes refer to God as Hashem, which is shorthand for the Tetragrammaton, which I'm not pronouncing, but the four-letter name of God. And sometimes it refers to him as Elohim, which means God. Why isn't it just used one name or one way of describing him throughout the Bible. And because of this question, so biblical critics postulate that the, you know, the Bible was comprised of multiple documents, one represented by J, which is, which are, which are verses that use the name Hashem and one, one written by somebody named E, which are verses that talk about the Elohim. And based on, you know, this is one of the big ideas that they have in biblical criticism. But you know, they then invent this question. This is not a new question. This question has been around for over two thousand years already. Why sometimes it says Shem and sometimes it says Elokim? And you know, every little kid who in second grade who learns Chumash with Rashi already knows that when it says Hashem, it's referring to the perceived aspect of Hashem acting in a way that looks like He's doing mercy. And when it says Elokim, it's saying that Hashem is acting in a way that looks like He's meeting out justice or din to the world, right? So th- th- there's another way of answering it that we already had this answer before you came on to the ideas of the biblical critics. You know, so even like a lot of the small different things that Bible critics like latch onto, a-, a lot of them, when you when you look at the question and you look at what the, com- the traditional commentators said before, the, the question just like falls away. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about the book of Judges right now because that, that's what I was thinking about earlier today. So you know, in the book of Judges, one example is that uh, there is a, one of the judges, his name was Gidon. Gidon had an alternate name. His name was Yerubal. Right? His name was Yerubal. Now, if you take the name Yerubal and you look at it literally, the name Yerubal means Yeru, like fearer of Baal, one who fears Baal, right? So that would be the type of name born by a person that you would expect to be a part of the Baal cult, somebody who was a believer in Baal. So you're going to give him this name, which has, a, a, they call it in onomastics, the study of names. So there's something called a theophoric element, which is a, a, an, an element in the name that refers to a, a god, a theophoric. Like we have tons of names in the Bible, Yeho, whatever, or whatever, Yahoo, or whatever, El, or Eli, whatever. Right? All of these are theophoric elements that refer to God in the person's personal name. So Yerubal means one who fears Baal. 
So you would have thought that Yerubal would refer to somebody who is a follower of Baal, right? And yet the way that the Bible presents Gidon slash Yerubal is that he was actually on a, he was on a quest to fight against Baal. And the way the Bible understands the name Yerubal, it's Yariv Baal. He who's fighting against Baal, like Riv, like the word fight or to make a, to make, striving against Baal, right? But a Bible critic will take the name Yerubal in isolation from what it, from the way it comes up and in, 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 in the way it's described in the Bible and say Yerubal means that, that Gidon was actually a Baal worshiper. And what happened was that you know later editors or whatever in the Bible decided that they want to make Yerubal into a more acceptable character. So they had to make him look like he was going against Baal. So they created this whole narrative to, 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 to make it. But, but the narrative is based on this kernel of truth that his name was Yerubal, but that he was really a follower of Baal and not against the Baal. And they base this whole thing on the fact that his name is Yerubal instead of Yerivbal. Okay, that, that, that's the basis for this. But then you look and you find in the Jewish commentators beforehand and you'll see that they already discussed this question. The Ramban and the Radak in Parshas Bereshis in Genesis 1.8, actually in, in a completely different context, they just mentioned like, you know, offhandedly, they mentioned that, oh, by the way, in the name Yerubal, the letter Bet, sort of serves a double, t- takes double duty. It, it serves two functions. It's like as if the name is Yeriv Baal, right? Yeriv Baal. So, so you really, you understand it as if there's two, the letter bet appears twice, even though it's there only once, right? So now you, the whole edifice that the, that the, the Bible critics built based on the fact that Yerubal is spelled with only one bet, the whole thing just falls away when you look at the Ramban, when you look at the Radak. So I, I really do think when we approach biblical criticism that my, my my favorite approach is that you take these localized issues, each issue on its own, and you try to see how does tradition deal with this issue and how does it try to answer these questions. And you you, know, you don't have to reinvent everything every time that academia comes up with a new question. So basically, I, I want to take this and try to answer our first question about monotheism, right? We said, how could you say that Judaism is a monotheistic religion if the monotheistic elements in the Bible only appear in Deuteronomy and not anywhere else in the first four books of the five books of Moses? How could that be? How could you say Judaism is monotheistic? It it only appears in the book of Devarim. I I, I agree with you that, you know, the fact that it only appears in, in Deuteronomy it's not such a big problem because, okay, so the, the mitzvah of Yibum also only appears in Deuteronomy, although it is alluded to somewhat in the book of Genesis. There are a lot of things in Deuteronomy that only come up in Deut- the death of Moses. You're, you're right. But I, was, I, I actually found this question um, in, an intriguing question. Why is monotheism only mentioned in Devarim and not mentioned elsewhere? And I was actually bothered for a while by... Why did nobody else discuss this? You know, I fall back on this idea of, you know, most of the questions that that Bible critics ask were usually asked a long time ago by the rabbis. Like, how come nobody ever asked this question? How come this never comes up? Until one day, I was sitting in the base Madrash, and I was learning a sefer by Rabbi Moshe of Trani, 
also known as the Mabit. He lived from 1505 to 1585. He was the rabbi in Jerusalem at the same time that Rabbi Yosef Cairo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, was the rabbi in Sfat. And Rabbi Moshe of Trani, in his work, Beis Elokim, actually asks this question. He addresses this exact question. Why is it that the Torah only speaks about monotheism in an explicit way in the book of Devarim and not elsewhere? And this is in Beis Elokim, or Beis Elohim, Shah Yesodos, chapter 8. I'm going to read it to you the way I wrote it down in my notes. It says, or at least I wrote, Mabit explains that the Torah purposely waits until the end to explicitly mention its monotheistic doctrine. This is because only in the hindsight of Deuteronomy is God's oneness readily apparent. In Genesis, Hashem creates and recreates man as though he, with a capital H, has multiple conflicting plans for creation, as though he were made up of multiple personalities. It only becomes clear later on in the Bible that Hashem has a master plan for creation, which involves the election of the Jewish people. After he chooses the Jewish people as his nation, instead of destroying them for their sins, like he did to mankind earlier at the Deluge and at the Tower of Babel, he constantly resolves to preserve them and brings them to the cusp of entering the Promised Land. Only at that juncture is it obvious that there's only one God driving the entire course of history, with everything leading up to this spectacular event serving as but a prelude. It was only at this point that Moses authored Deuteronomy, which repeatedly highlights the monotheistic element of Judaism. Right? Meaning, the Mabit is asking, why, is only, why does this idea of monotheism only appear in Devarim? And he says, because it only fits in Devarim. Because in Devarim you get to the end of the story. And now that you get to the end of the story, you can look back and see, well, all these different things where it seems like God is changing his mind and he's creating and then he's destroying and he's doing all these different things. It, you, it looks like there are multiple gods. But then when you get to Devarim, you can look back in hindsight and and you can see that you can see that 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 it's one it's one God that that's that that's making all of it happen. So the Mabit has has a very compelling explanation as to why this monotheistic doctrine only only appears in Devar. In chapter twelve in his Beis Elokim Shara Yisodis, he talks about he makes this point he makes a similar point about uh, about how the Book of Deuteronomy is it, it, it is intended to explicitly spell out ideas about God that you find in the earlier four books of the Pentateuch. It's like the whole point is to make it more explicit and drive home and, and, and drive home what you're trying to say, what was left implicit in the earlier books. So we have really sort of two answers that the Mabit says. So you want to say, you know, is Judaism a monotheistic religion or not a monotheistic religion? You know, based on the fact that it only appears in Devarim. Well, I have good. I have. I have a good, compelling reason to explain why the monotheistic idea only appears in the Book of Devarim. Let, let, let's move on to the second point, right? Our, our second question was: How can it be that you know Judaism believes in these different divine forces—angels, demons, mazalas, spheres, things like that? If Judaism is the belief in only one God, or the worship of only one God, so then how can you have room for all these divine characters that 
you know, they, they, they act sort of like gods. They're doing things, intervening in history and doing supernatural things in what you would expect of a god. So I mentioned before that, you know, this question is, is strongest when you look at Judaism from the mystical perspective, the mystical, the mystical way of looking at Judaism. Some people in response to this question actually will try, will, will, will try to argue for a very strong monotheistic, monotheistic model. In doing so, they're gonna, they, they argue for a, 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 Mama, a Maimonidean style rationalism. And a Maimonidean style rationalism sort of downplays these divine characters. You know, it'll sort of explain them allegorically. You know, an angel is not really an angel. It's sort of an expression of God's will. Or you'll dis- they, they dismiss them as just evidence of non-Jewish influences. You know, oh yeah, the Talmud talks about Shadim because the Talmud was influenced by Zoroastrianism and Persian, you know, Persian milieu that it was written in. So they believe in these type of things, but it's not necessarily part of the Jewish tradition. I, I find these approaches very difficult to accept because you know these these concepts of angels and demons and sphere well spheros not necessarily in Chazal, but angels and demons and mazolos are definitely pretty explicit in Tanakh and in Chazal. And it's it's very hard to say that you know they're just non-Jewish influence or to say that it's allegorical. It, it, it doesn't it doesn't sit with me, but. My point is that one 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 way of uh, of trying to understand like how does Judaism take these angels and demons and things like that and and make that jibe with the monotheistic doctrine is they'll tell you we don't believe in an- we don't really believe in angels we don't really believe in demons we don't really believe in spheros we don't really believe in mazolas and therefore we only really believe in one God that very strong monotheistic approach. That is one approach, and personally, I don't think that that's that 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 is the right approach. the The way I want to understand it is like this: one of the fundamental ideas on which Jewish philosophy hinges is the concept of free will. And the way I see it, there's only two beings that have free will: there's God, and there's man. God has absolute free will. He can whatever he decides happens, no questions asked. That's just the way it is. Man also has free will. Man has different choices that he can make, but man has a limited type of free will that was granted to him by God. Hashem says, you know, I'm giving you limited amount of choices. There are certain things that you can choose your own destiny and choose what's going to happen to you, and you do have your own free will. And God has the Whatever autonomy God gives us in, in 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 granting us this free will, so we have our own free will. It is limited. God has its absolute free will. We have our limited free will. This goes back to you know the old the old um, paradox between Yedia and Bechira, between determinism and freedom of choice, which you know we've spo- you've spoken about in earlier episodes. And you know once we start talking about this, then it never ends. But you know it's a dis- different discussion. But the, the point is that man has absolute free will. Uh, sorry, God has absolute free will. Man has limited free will. Some some even explain that when it says in, in Genesis that God that man was created, but Elokim in the image of God, 
it means that you know, man is like a like 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 a copy of God in a way that you know God has absolute free will, and man is like sort of somewhat like that that, that that like the shadow of God that we also have free will, although it's you know albeit limited, and therefore it's incomparable to God's unlimited free will. But you know it, it's sort of the same idea. Now, as I said, there's only two beings that have free will: man and God. Nothing else is granted this ability to make independent decisions. When you talk about angels, demons, mazalas, spheres, all of these different, what we called before, divine actors or divine characters, none of them are independent of God's will. They don't, they can't make their own, an angel can't decide, a rogue angel, um, Christianity's story of fallen angels notwithstanding, but a rogue angel can't make decisions and do things you know, against God's will. They're totally subservient to God. They're like animals. Animals don't aren't conscious enough to make their own decisions. They're just they're just part of a, a a system that God created and He put into place, and He continues to power, and He's in charge of that system. And part of the system is that He created something called angels. He created something called demons, and this is part of the way God interacts with the world through these you could call them tools that, that, that He uses to interact with the world, but they're not. They're not independent entities that have their own ability to make choices. They don't have their own free will. They don't have their own freedom of choice. So you can make the argument that Judaism is monotheistic, even if it believes. You can make an argument that, well, even if Judaism believes in angels, demons, mazalas, and spheres, it's still considered monotheistic because we only worship one God. We might recognize the existence of other forces, but we only worship one God. Okay, that, that that's one point. That maybe monotheism doesn't mean the belief in God, but which God are you worshiping? And you're only worshiping one God, so it's monotheistic. But that, that that's that's not that's not, that's only part of the picture. It's not just that in Judaism it's forbidden to pray or otherwise worship angels, demons, and mazalas. It's that Judaism also believes that angels, demons, mazalas, etc., they don't even have the power to do anything on their own. They're, all of their power comes from God. They can't make their own independent decisions. So when we say that we, Judaism only believes in one God, it means that Judaism only believes in one ultimate power that powers that powers everything. There's only one God. Man is somewhat like God, that man has this limited free will, but there's nothing else in the world that's like God besides God and man. All these other forces are just, you know, they're, they're just automatons moving parts of this greater system that God put in place. You know, the, the Kabbalists themselves, like the, the Ramak writes that um, Mazolus are like pipes. Like sinoras, like they're like pipes, or spheros are like pipes or windows that channel God's influx of influence, what they call shefa, into the world. They have no say in the matter on their own. They're they're just tools that God uses to focus you know, what He's trying to do into the world, and it goes in in, in that direction, and, and is opposed to in that direction. So He does it through this angel or through this spheros or mazolas or, or these different things, but they don't have any. They, they don't have any ability to make their own decisions. The same could be said of tzaddikim. 
in especially in Hasidic literature, where they talk about how the the the, the, the Rebbe, the Tzaddik, the Tzaddik Gomor plays a role that's similar to the Mazalas. They, they channel God's Shefa into the world. So, but that does not mean that the Tzaddik consciously decides, well, this guy is going to get a hundred dollars this week, and this guy is going to get fifty dollars. It doesn't work like that. It means that that the tzaddik is somehow this metaphysical conduit for Hashem's influx of shefa, but the tzaddik himself is not an independent thing that gets to meet out the shefa. It's just it's it's, it's some sort of metaphysical way that Hashem uses the tzaddik as a tool to bring out the shefa. But the tzaddik himself doesn't have a say. Just like the angels, the demons, the mazalas, they don't have a say in how the shefa is meted out. I know that there are opinions in rabbinic literature that seem to say that angels do have bechira. I wrote an article about this in the rabbinic journal called Kovetz Hamaor that's published in America a few years ago. Um, but you know, for, for the most part, the mainstream idea in, in Judaism is that angels do not have bechira. They don't, they don't have their own ability to make independent decisions. So, so, so Judaism is definitely monotheistic, both in terms of the fact that you, we only worship one God, and in the fact that we only believe that one ultimate God exists, even if there's these other forces that also exist, but those forces are not independent. They're all created by God, and they're all subservient to God. This concept of monotheism could be contrasted with the idea of polytheism. Right? Polytheism is, let's say the word poly means many. Polytheism also has both of these points, exact the flip opposite of what I was saying in, in monotheism. Polytheism believes in the existence of multiple gods and also allows a person to worship multiple gods. So the, the, the poly goes on the worship and also on the belief in the existence of. So, like for example, the Roman in the, in the Greco-Roman system of, of, of polytheism, right? So let's say you let's say you're in Rome. You're a Roman person. You can one day you worship Jupiter, one day you worship Mars, one day you worship Venus. You know, it depends on your specific needs. Depends on whatever floats your boat. Depends on you know, what, what works out best for you. Or maybe you know because Mars is associated with war. So if you need success in war, you worship Mars today. Venus is is associated with love. So if you need help in your love life, so you worship Venus today. And, and so there's multiple gods, and you're worshiping multiple gods. That's polytheism and in the polytheistic model each god is equally powerful and so what you have very interestingly and there's a, a biblical scholar named Yechezkel Kaufman who, who wasn't religious but is actually very traditionalist in the way he um the way the way he presents the what he calls the ancient Israelite religion which what, what I would say is you know biblical Judaism and he points out that Polytheism is characterized, or a, 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 one of the defining characteristics of polytheism is mythology. Where in mythology you have stories about multiple gods. They're fighting with each other. They're jealous with each other. They're sleeping around with each other. They have. It, it, it's like it's like it's a it's a soap opera. Polytheism is a soap opera because each of these gods is equally powerful. Right? It, it, it's the exact opposite of Judaism, where there's only one God on top. There's no, you know, I wrote my book. It's called God versus Gods, but people always point out to me that what do you mean God versus God? That's not a fair fight. 
There's only it's not a fair fight. There's there's only the Jewish the, the the God that in the monotheistic conception is the supreme one God that's in charge of everything. He is in charge of love and he's in charge of war and he's in charge of the rain. Jupiter is the is the is the is the rain is the rain god or the thunder god. It, it, it includes everything. It's it's all the all the, all of it together. It, what is interesting about polytheism, but this is a complicated discussion, is that even in in the mythology you find that the the gods themselves are subservient to an overarching force that they call fate, and and fate. That might be sort of a pagan admission of the existence of the one supreme God. You know, there are sources in Judaism that say that even the Goyim who worship Avodah Zarah, they also really believe in God. And, and this might be some sort of allusion to that. I don't know. This is a very complicated discussion that I don't really want to get into. But that, that's, the, that, that's the, the, the polytheistic model. And then, so that's the exact opposite of the monotheistic. Monotheistic is... We only believe in one God and we only worship one God. And polytheistic is we believe in multiple gods and we worship multiple gods. In, in between, there's other isms. Uh, scholars call it henotheism or monolatry, which it's they believe in multiple gods, but they only worship one of those multiple gods. Right? So I believe, you know, the, people like to say that there, there, was, there was an Egyptian king, uh, an Egyptian pharaoh that they discovered in the Amarna letters. His name was Akhenaten. And Akhenaten, he upended the entire religion that was practiced in Egypt. And he said, we're only going to worship one God, and that's the sun God, uh, Aton, and he's going to be the one God that we worship. And so people want to say, oh, this Akhenaten, he was some sort of monotheistic person. And he started some sort of monotheistic religion in Egypt which depending on exactly how you date him, he was either before the Exodus or, or not long after the Exodus. And let's say, you know, so, you know, Judaism or the Israelites weren't the only monotheists in the, in the ancient Near East. But the truth is that if you look at the writings and you look at you know, what Akhenaten really stood for, he admitted to the, he admitted to the existence of multiple gods, but he said that we only worship one God. But there are multiple gods. We just we don't worship them. We only worship one god. We're loyal to this one god. And the the uh, Assyriologists also point out that the Assyrians, it seems, they worshipped one single god named Ashur. But they also they weren't monotheists because they also believed in the existence of multiple gods. They just happened to be that they worshipped one god. So, so that's sort of in between monotheism and polytheism. This idea of you know, we believe in multiple gods. But but we don't we only worship one of them. There, there there's a, there, there's so much to say about this. There's an idea that um, uh, an Egyptologist named Jan Asman in Germany, or it might be Jan Asman actually, uh, who lives in Germany, a very prominent Egyptologist. He wrote an idea that you know the Chiddush, the, the the novel, the innovation of Israelites or the Jewish of Judaism is this idea of what he calls the mosaic distinction. The, the mosaic distinction says that, you know, religion is not just about who you worship, but it's also about true and false. And so he wants to say that Judaism was the first group or religion in the ancient world that came up with the idea that there only exists one God and the other gods don't even exist. 
Uh, even the monolatry or, or henotheism doesn't delegitimize other gods as, as illegitimate. It just says, you know, you worship your God, but we're worshiping this one guy out of the group of multiple, out of a pantheon of multiple gods. But Judaism said, no, you can't worship other gods because other gods don't even exist. It's a very, it's a very strong form of monotheism. It's not just that we only worship one God, but the, 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 the other one, other one, people accuse um, Professor Asman of being anti-Semitic. You, what are you saying? That Jews are intolerant? How could you say such a thing? But I think that the truth is that that I, he, he's he's on, he's definitely onto something. That, that I think this is a fairly accurate way of understanding what Judaism is about. That, that it's this monotheistic idea that other gods don't even exist. Okay, well, that's a lot of lot to take in. So let me um, let's just maybe end off with a, with a couple of points. I think we'll have to end off with that. Um, so let me just focus on this uh, final point you're making about polytheism being, you know, the two different types of polytheism. I forget the name of the second type. And the first type was the idea that there are multiple gods and we worship multiple gods, which is what usually we, we assume the Greco and, and Roman traditions um, believed in. And then you, the second type was, you have to remind me of the name, uh, where multiple gods are um, the existence. Henotheism. Henotheism. So, so the ontology is there, right? The existence is there, but the the service is not there. They don't necessarily worship all of these different gods. Now, what I was just wondering in, in the back of my head when you're talking about this concept of there being this overriding idea of fate, how, the, the difference between the concept of fate, this maybe let's let's call it this overarching this uber god, and then there being these you know these specific paratim, these specific little gods is that, based on your previous idea, is that these gods still have free will, correct? They still have free will, that's the whole point, they still have free will. They're still able to... Now, now, if they can go against the this uber-god, in what way exactly is he an uber-god? I mean, if he's an uber-god, then he should be overarching, it should be the same as, as Judaism. But if he's not able to um, affect them and they can do what they want, then that's not really an uber-god at all. So how, how what is exactly this uber-god um, behind the scenes doing at all? I don't know. I, I I I don't. I haven't really studied. You know what? What is the Greco-Roman concept of fate? You know, is is it is it a force? Is it something natural? Like what, what makes it happen? Is it? I, I don't know how they how they understood it. But the thing is that in the Greco-Roman world, nobody was offering sacrifices to fate. Right. Right. It, so you it, think? It, yeah. So it wasn't, so it, it, right. Yeah. I don't know. It wasn't looked at as a god. It's a very interesting discussion you can have. I don't quite understand how any of these things work, but you know, there's Hinduism. This they have these similar ideas of like the spirit of the world and these all-encompassing spirit ideas that are similar. That they're like in charge of everything besides the little spirits. I don't know exactly right. how all of this works together. It's, it's right. something to, to, to think about. Right. It seems to be the the, the the main point we're coming out with is that Judaism accepts that God is completely in charge in terms of the um, having complete free will. Whereas all the other things like angels and sefirot um, and the conduits and all these different passageways to bring in Hashem into the world, they don't have any free will unto themselves. Now, if, if we can just finish off, just because we've, it's been an hour already, so there's so much to discuss, it seems like. Um, but let me just um, f- finish off that. If we if we have free will, if humans have free will, 
So we've we've sort of we're dualists now. We we believe in God. We believe in humans having free. If if, if the distinguishing factor of a God is having free will, then shouldn't we accept some sort of dualism? We are gods, and and God is God. That, that's what was bothering me when you were talking about that before. Well, we don't have an. We we only have free will because God gave it to us. Right. So then, if the angels got free will because God gave it to them, then they could also be gods. Just. They could also wouldn't be gods, I'm saying. I mean, we, we we received our free will from God, so therefore we're not gods. Angels could, and angels and all sorts of animals could have received their free will from God and also not been gods. I don't know. I have to think about it. Right, right. Yeah, this seems like a really fascinating discussion. I mean, if, I can, if I can bring another point in just to finish off the, the episode, um, there is recent, not relatively recent work in, in philosophy of religion. I'm obviously I'm not a theologian. Um, but I've done a bit of studies in philosophy of religion. And um, one of the interesting points made by a recent, he's actually, a, he's a philosopher and a theologian called John Hick. He, I think he died recently, but he was a, um, a philosopher around the 70s and 80s. Is that he wanted to make what he called a Copernican revolution, right? He wanted to change, um, he was Christian, so he was talking about Jesus. He wanted to change Jesus from being at the center of Christianity and place God at the center. This is really important because he felt that his interaction with Jews and Muslims and Buddhists and, 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 and Hindus, etc., meant that to just conceive of there being one specifically true, correct religion was just untenable. And I mean, that's really been heavily debated since. Philosophers like Plantinger um, and others have really debated that idea. But what John Hick um says fascinatingly, and I really think that this is, I want to hear your thoughts on this, is that in order to explain how there can be this, you know, this multitude of religions, we put God at the center. We say there is this concept called God, but God reveals himself differently to different cultures, right? I don't know if you're familiar with that theology before. So he, yeah, he's trying uh, to say, it, yeah. it, I mean, uh, there's, there, there, was, there was a Jewish theologian named Rabbi Eliyahu ben Amozik, um, you might want to look at his work. So he he goes he goes with a with an approach like that. Right, right, right. That, so I, I can't remember. He wrote a book called Judaism and Other Religions. I just read a recent book called Judaism and Other Religions, and they also this this person also um, seems to develop a similar thesis. Right. What do you think about? What do you think of? Do you think that that could ever be a? a t- I think it's an untenable thesis the, the, philosophically because of Plantinga's concerns, which we obviously don't have time to go into now. But theologically, is that a tenable thesis that Judaism could accept that? We have this, just talking about this concept of fate and there being this, you know, this single God. We see, we see it re- recurring um, in history that people believe in fate. Sometimes they believe in the sun God. They all had this central figure called God. Whereas the specifics of how that manifests itself to different cultures and religions may have varied. And maybe Judaism is just another one of these different uh, manifestations. That's what these um, that's what these pluralists then want, want to argue. Do you think that's theologically tenable for a Jew to believe? I mean, even even a person like Ben Amozik, who 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 I, who I mentioned before, who goes with this approach, he's he's what he's trying to do is um, make the concept of universalism and particularism. He's trying to make them dovetail with each other, and and see like how how can we understand Judaism as espousing both a universalist approach or a universalist understanding of God. And a particular understanding of God. How could it be that God is the one God of the entire creation, and then also He's the Elokei Yisrael, He's the right. God of Israel? How how, how can it be both? 
and so so the way he the way he answers it based on Osfarno is that God is the God of the entire world, and the Jews are charged with a certain mission that's given specifically to the Jews. And each you know each nation has their role in the world, and they're supposed to worship God in their way, which he says is going to be the the seven Noahide laws. But the the Jews' mission is that they're going to be the, the the representatives of God in this world in terms of teaching people about what their duties are and things like that. So it, mm-hmm. he he I mean he's he's not saying he's, he's not saying that Islam or Christianity is legitimate on its own per se. He's saying that you know they 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 could be understood as manifestations of Judaism. And the Rambam himself makes the point that um, Islam and Christianity they're, the, they they are valuable in the sense that they're gonna they brought the world which was you know un, until two thousand years ago was almost all pagan except for for the for the Jews they brought them to the idea of monotheism so that when Mashiach comes when the end of days comes people will be much more um, will be much more readily able to accept. You know the the kingdom of a, of a of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's really fascinating. So we've discussed biblical criticism, monotheism, and um, we've discussed religious pluralism. So we've really done a, I think, an excellent introduction to a lot of the themes um, in theology and in and in and in biblical studies. And um, Rabbi Klein, thank you so much for joining us today. I mean, I, I hope really hope we can have you again. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's there's so much more to discuss as we can tell. Um, as yeah. hopefully the listeners will be able to tell. I'm going to put in the description of this podcast various different links to Rabbi Klein's works, especially to his book, God vs. Gods. And if anyone has any questions on this podcast, please email me and I will forward them to Rabbi Klein or I'll, I can just attach your email address if that's easier. Um, and please, um, you know, we can discuss this more via email with Rabbi Klein and myself. And hopefully we'll be able to gain clarity in some of these very difficult monotheistic um, and th- different theological topics and different theological um, discussions. So thank you. Or if not, at least we can have fun trying to. At least we can have fun trying to. Exactly, exactly. Okay, great. Thank you, Rabbi Klein. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a good evening.